Hello and welcome to the Feels Like 45 podcast. I'm Cade Webb, and as always, I am joined by Dustin Ragusa. Dustin, how are you on this July 4th weekend? Yeah, just feeling very uh, July 4th holiday enthusiastic right now. Cade, a little red, white, and blue. Getting ready for some fireworks. What about you? Yeah, absolutely. Feeling the same way. Just returned from a uh, long weekend in Wichita and off for the next two days. So uh, yeah, if you think uh, I'm doing a lot of chores around the house, you would be correct. So uh, it's <laughs> it's a lot of fun these days. Absolutely. Yeah. And Cade, we're, we're obviously not going to talk about it right now, but big news. And just I feel like we should shout it out now and later in the podcast is Ricky Fowler winning for the first time since 2019 on the PGA Tour. It was amazing. If you got to watch it, I know I put a couple of clips out towards the end of some of the big shots he made on our Twitter account. But if you got to watch it, it was actually pretty difficult because they kept changing where it was being broadcast yeah. <laughs> three times in the same morning. But it was absolutely electric. We talked about how Ricky, it's always a roller coaster with him. And this was very roller coaster esque towards the end, but it was a lot of fun, very emotional victory. The interview was great after him with his family. It was awesome. Yeah. I mean, no question about it. We had it for later, but I, why not just talk about it real quick? I mean, Ricky, uh, the comeback that he's had, I mean, this, this win secures it. He's gone from in the last eight months, my brother texted me this, this morning, he's gone from the 100 and 85th player in the world to the 23rd ranked player in the world in a span of eight months. He's had one win, but he could have had multiple more in that uh, sequence. And he's probably locked up a Ryder Cup slot. I mean, so to think about where he was just a year ago, I mean, there were people speculating that he would he would not play for much longer or at least not be relevant on the PGA Tour for much longer. Uh, to to this is uh, is pretty remarkable, and obviously the Oklahoma State connection runs deep. But I mean, I, there's two things that stick out to me about Ricky Fowler. One is his swing back when he was you know uh, hot on the trail, you know the young guy on the tour. His swing was so volatile, and he had trouble replicating it. Now he's working with Butch Harmon, and I don't know if you saw this, Dustin, but there was kind of a side by side comparison of just his angle. Uh, in 2010 versus now, his swing looks the same every time. His game is great. And I think he's just between the ears, much more solid. And I think he's going to win many more tournaments because of it. Yeah, it's a great point about his swing. He's also got a new caddy who's also named yeah. Ricky. But, and I don't, it wasn't any hard feelings towards his old caddy, who's a great caddy as well. I think it was just kind of going in that new direction, like you talked about, making sure everything was consistent, making sure he was in the right headspace. He's got he's got the family now with the daughter. You got to see her in his interview after. So just kind of completely revamping his personal life. Not that it, anything was wrong with his personal life before, but his golf game, his swing, and it's all kind of coming together. And it's really awesome to see. And you know, for me personally, not saying I'm a bigger Ricky fan than anybody else, but 
he kind of introduced me to Oklahoma yeah. State golf. Him 100%. being a freshman the same year I was a freshman at Oklahoma State, going what entering the PGA in 2009, 2010. So while I was still in college, becoming big with Puma, the orange on Sundays, the full orange. That was really, I, I didn't pay attention to Oklahoma State golf at all, being from Louisiana. So that was kind of my first introduction. So I've always got a spot in my heart for Ricky, even though I love Victor Hovland. I love a lot of the other Oklahoma State golfers that are on tour. Taylor Gooch, who we'll talk about later as well. Ricky's kind of always been that number one guy for me in terms yeah. of cowboy golf. I think a lot of people probably feel the way you do about that. I mean, I agree with you. Ricky Fowler is the quintessential Oklahoma State golf representative and in my mind. I mean, as a kid, I mean, I had I had the the white and orange Pumas. Those were my standard summer golf shoes. So he had it, he has made an imprint on golf. I mean, you see kids walking around still today wearing his hats wearing his polos. He absolutely left a mark on the game without ever really having won anything other than the players back then. So I do think that he's he's the guy that most people think of when they think of Oklahoma State golf of this era. Um, but Victor Hovland, you know, that that's no slight to him. I just think that Ricky Fowler was a superstar. I mean, he, he absolutely yeah. was, fell off, and now he's well on his way back. So the, the comeback story is outstanding. And again, I, I don't think that this is going to be his last win. He's he's on a tear, and he's playing consistent right now. So, uh, I mean, we had a question I saw, uh, which I don't know who asked it, so we may shout him out later. But who wins the major first, Ricky or Victor? I might lean Ricky because I think he could compete in the open coming up. Yeah, that was our guy, Tyler Jones, D.O. Thanks for that. Dr. Tyler Jones. He asked us that question. Thanks so much, Tyler. Yeah, it's it's crazy, kid. You know, you look at the FedEx Cup points. Victor's sixth and Ricky is eighth. And, and just for people that don't pay as much attention to golf, the FedEx points are based on where they finish each tournament and they get a little bit more emphasis on wins and high finishes. And that's kind of how they do the playoff at the end. And and that's just insane to think about, like the fact that they are both in the top 10, because if you ask this question before this golf season, I think everybody says Ricky's done right. and it's going to be Victor. But now to your point, it could be both of them could win it. Yeah, exactly. So it's it's absolutely insane. It's a great point to bring up that question and and apologies to you because we went a completely different direction than what we had on the agenda. So no, no, this got really hyped up. I know, but yeah, it's it's crazy to think about. And you talked about just his popularity on the tour. He's in a playoff with Hadwin and Colin Morikawa, right? Who is a very popular golfer, and the crowd is chanting Ricky. Right. Right. I mean, it's just insane. Yeah. He, I, I'm, again, I use the word celebrity and I still stand by it. I think for a guy that has not, you know, yet crossed that major uh, hurdle, he's probably the most beloved golfer of all time that's never won a major. He, he would be up there. And I, I'm sure there are others, but he would, he would be right up there. Max Homa, maybe, but I feel like even he's like, you know, kind of a cult classic, you know, <laughs> Ricky Fowler, everybody from, you know, age eight to 80 loved Ricky Fowler and loves Ricky Fowler. So, you know, Dustin, we, we, we would be remiss though, if we didn't shout out Taylor Gooch, he just won his third live event of this season. And it's kind of like if a tree falls down in the forest, did it make a sound a little bit? Like he's quietly having 
an unbelievable year and is making a case to also secure a Ryder Cup slot, even yeah. though he's on the live tour. He's he's the only person that's won three times. Right. Kepka and DJ have won two each. And so that was four million for that victory in Spain. So now he's earned over 13 million in eight yeah. live events this year. Yeah. That's <laughs> pretty good. I mean, well, I guess you understand why maybe he went to live. <laughs> you yeah. see a number That's like that. That's not even talking about the signing bonus he got to start playing there. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And he beats Bryson DeChambeau, who I think was in the lead going into that final round. I believe DeChambeau I so. had a two-stroke lead. Taylor Gooch wins. Taylor Gooch, Ricky Fowler, and Victor Hovland are three of the best golfers in the world right yeah. now. <laughs> They're all yeah. Oklahoma State guys. Yeah. Not to mention, not to mention our guy Wyndham Clark. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No kidding. Just the guy that just won the last major two weekends ago. Absolutely. Well, Dustin, yeah. I mean, I go ahead. I think you have a point here. Oh no, I was just gonna say it's it's crazy. One question I wanted to ask you. If you had to take a poll of people that maybe aren't that into sports that graduated from Oklahoma state and asked them to name. They think the most famous Oklahoma state non-football athlete is how many do you think would say Ricky Fowler? Like, I think he's that popular of a name. A lot of them, a lot of them, because I think a lot of people watch Sunday golf. I think a lot of uh, families sit down and there's Sunday golf just on. And if you were doing that back when Ricky Fowler was on a tear you knew him. You were like, who's the kid in the bright orange clothes with the long hair? Um, yeah, I think it, w- it would have to be Ricky, wouldn't it? Because you said non-football. Who else would it be? Marcus Smart? But again, I don't think people think of it that way. I mean, it, I know personally for me, like my wife, she she likes going to golf events live. But right. if she's not going to ever watch on TV unless it's, you know, Ricky in contention for a big tournament. and. Right. But I'm basically not a golf fan at all. And she knows who Ricky Fowler is. You know, everybody associates Ricky Fowler with Puma also. Right. So that helps out as well. He's so attached to that brand. It's it's not on the level of like Michael Jordan and Jordan brand Nike, but it's it's up there with some of the others around that atmosphere. So yeah, but that's a fantastic point too. And we can we can uh, do this on our spinoff podcast where we talk all about sports marketing, but that's a great point. I mean- Shout out to, to my buddy, Mark, for bringing yeah, that up to me in a group message yesterday. To talk about the way he elevated that brand in that line, uh, uh, being golf. I mean, nobody was talking about Puma. And now Puma, again, I'll go back to, when I say Ricky Fowler's hat, you can see it, right? You can see it in your mind. It's the huge kind of Puma across the front of the hat. And I I just think it's iconic in the way that, you know, maybe not the Air Jordan is, of course, but it's up there. It absolutely is. That's a phenomenal point. Dustin, I think we've, uh, we, we absolutely, yeah, that was talking there, uh, but I enjoyed that. And I think it was appropriate. Um, again, I think, I think Ricky's going to continue to compete, uh, especially as the open comes up here in a couple of weeks. So, uh, really look forward to seeing what he can do, but Dustin, I'll kind of kick it over to you as we've got some football news and notes to get through. Yeah, we had a couple, not not much on the NFL front or XFL or even IFL, which we talked recently, according to Oklahoma State Sports or related to Oklahoma State Sports. We've got one quick note. We're not going to dive into this. I just wanted to mention it because it's kind of a big deal. Not really. 
officially as of July 1st, which was this past Saturday, we're recording this podcast on a Monday, Houston, Cincinnati, BYU, and UCF have joined the conference. I believe it was two years ago that this expansion was announced, and now they are officially part of the Big 12. Not really any major takes on this or anything, Cade. I I just thought it would be weird if we didn't mention it, literally recording two days after it happened. Yeah, Dustin, it is good to uh, to see that. And I mean, obviously, it's a formality. And we obviously knew that they were coming. But did you happen to see BYU's tweet uh, of them being in the Big 12 and their Big 12 logo was like uh, off center? It was on the wrong yard line. Like they had one on the 25 and one on the 15. And they had to own it. It was kind of a tough look for, for them yeah. and the social media crew. Yeah, that was really funny. The social media interactions from these new schools have been all over the place. It's like they all have their own kind of personality, which is really funny. UCF seems to be very intense. You've got Houston, who seems to be a little bit more chill, I guess. BYU with the marketing blunder there. And then Cincinnati's kind of all over the place. It's going to be really fun. I know you and I are both, we both like that these four teams that came in, obviously there's teams we would have liked more. We've talked about this in a question we got recently. I think it was last podcast, but you and I, I don't think have any issues with these four teams and both think it's going to be pretty fun adding them in all sports. Yeah. The only one that I, I have, you know, long-term questions about is, is central Florida. Um, I think they are in a really good location to be able to recruit, but they're just so uh, unlike anything else in this conference that I have questions about, yeah, I think they're going to come in and be good quickly. And, and I wonder how long they'll be able to sustain it. It's not unlike the way things have gone for West Virginia. In my mind, you remember when they came into the conference, the Geno Smith, Tavon Austin, Stedman Bailey years, and then outside of the Will Greer era, they have not done anything. Uh, you know, they've, they've made their hay in basketball, but I think that they have struggled to be able to recruit at a high enough level and sustain and I just think that they're a they're kind of an outlier. Like they are in the Big Twelve, yes, but they don't feel like the Big Twelve. And so, um, I, I also think BYU has a similar issue coming up for it. So we'll see, Dustin. I think they're all great fits for the time being, and I think that they serve the purpose of sustaining the conference through this kind of turbulent era. But I I think that there are some fit questions long term that I have. And outside of the sports realm. Their enrollment, once Texas leaves, yeah. they're like double the size of every other school. <laughs> yeah, I think they have the largest enrollment in the United States. Is that yeah, it's right? like 70K uh, undergrad, I think, or something like that. It's Yeah, insane. that's like the entire town of Stillwater when class is in session and a football game is happening going yeah. to Central Florida. That's it's nuts. A, it's absolutely wild. But yeah, great point on Central Florida, who I also, I know you you, I think, think it's BYU, but this season, I actually think UCF is going to be the best out of those four. So that'll be interesting to see. I as think well. Central Florida is going to be really good. I think BYU is going to, I think they're going to be the one that finds the most um, stability year over year. Central Florida, I think, is going to be the best coming into this year after I've taken yeah. a closer look at them. I think that they're going to be pretty solid. And I love what you said about them being intense on social media. I, I mean, they they have the 2017 national champions thing in neon letters across their press box. I, I think they genuinely uh, take on that kind of chip on the shoulder. 
uh, you know, maybe a quote unquote uh, little brother type of program in that state where you have Florida, Florida State, Miami. Uh, I don't blame them, frankly, for, for the brand that honestly, they have. Though. Yeah, they're terrifying yeah, it, on social media. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't engage. That's a do not engage fan base. Um, along with that, Cade, we'll talk about this way more next week and the following week after they happen. But did want to mention big day, Big Twelve Media Days will be held on Wednesday, July twelfth, and Thursday, July thirteenth, in Arlington at AT and T Stadium, similar to last year. I know there'll be coverage on ESPNU and ESPN Plus. It'll be Baylor, BYU, Houston, Kansas, OSU, TCU, and Texas on July 12th. And then UCF, Cincinnati, Iowa State, K-State, OU, Texas Tech, and West Virginia on July 13th. And Oklahoma State will be bringing with them the following four players. Linebacker Colin Oliver, cornerback Corey Black, wide receiver Brennan Presley, and offensive lineman Preston Wilson. Cade, just before we move on from this, I wanted to ask, if you had to pick four from this team, what four would you have picked? Run me back Colin to the Oliver. Four. We would both keep Colin Oliver in there. So it's Colin Oliver, Corey Black, Brendan Presley, Preston Wilson. I think Oliver and Presley, 100%, I would have kept both of them in. I know who you think is missing. I, I mean, I think, and I don't even think we're going to be able to, the media is going to be able to talk to him until like halfway through the season or until Bib 12 play starts, but I would have taken Alan Bowman. 100%. 100% Alan Bowman. And I would have loved to hear Kendall Daniels behind the mic too. Yes. Selfishly. Um, you know, I think that you can't really go wrong. Corey Black's been a leader on the defensive side for years now. He's probably earned that spot. So kudos to uh, the group for picking him in that regard. But uh, yeah, I, I agree with you. It, do you think that the Alan Bowen thing is because of that first year media restriction rule? I hope that that's waived. He's, you know, 29 years old or whatever he is. I think it is. I think it is due to that. And I think it will be waived, maybe not during the non-con. And if like, for some reason, Oklahoma state, like lost two of the three in the non-con, maybe it wouldn't get waived. But I think after they go undefeated in the non-con, it sounds like from what I've heard Robert Allen say on the radio too, that he thinks that Gundy will relax that and let Alan Bowman talk to the media. I think Bowman himself, I'm not saying he like wants to talk to the media. I don't think any of the players really want to, but he probably would even think that was weird if he had to just not answer questions for an entire season when he's been in college now for what, six years. Yeah. And I think so many people want to hear from him too. I mean, uh, Mike's got to know that I'm sure that I'm sure that that's going to change. I mean, his whole story, and especially if this goes well, will be one of the most talked about storylines in the conference this year is if Alan Bowman returns to form, it's going to be every it's, it's going to be the top storyline of every game that Oklahoma State plays in. Oh, yeah. No, completely agree. That's a great point. All right, moving on, Cade, to the – we wanted to hit this. This actually was recorded, I believe, on Saturday. So the 2023 OSU OG&I Summer Series. Oklahoma State did this as well last summer. Podcast series. I, I don't know if it started before that or if last summer was the first, but it was Dave Hunziker and Mike Gundy on this one. The I can't remember who the first episode was, but this is episode two. Gundy went for what, Kate, 40 minutes yeah. on this podcast. I would definitely say to check it out. But Kate and I wanted to hit some of the highlights from this. They don't really, Oklahoma State doesn't really promote this podcast. I don't, it's not on OSU Max at this time. So I, I would definitely say go check it out. I'll tweet it out actually from our account after. Nice. 
but there were a lot of big notes from this. He started off talking NIL, which not a lot of stuff that was new, I don't think, Cade, unless you think there was anything he was the one thing that I thought was interesting was the him talking about the bidding wars that some schools are getting into and OSU not participating in that. And then he also mentioned he thinks that there should be kind of like a salary cap on NIL. It didn't sound like a team salary cap like you would see in the pros, but like on a specific player. So, so teams know kind of what the like range is. He, it, it, would, it would be hard to do anything that Gundy was suggesting, but I do think it's interesting that he has like all of these ideas about this stuff. And Gundy normally makes these predictions and then five years later, we actually see them come true. So I did think that was interesting. Yeah, I think one of the more interesting lines of that kind of topic of discussion on NIL, you you kind of towed on it, but talking about the um, the smoke and mirrors that can come with a recruit out of the portal, these kids can have agents. And Mike Gunny didn't necessarily say that, but they can. And anytime I see, you know, especially in basketball, this is the case where 50 programs have reached out to a player within 48 hours. I, I, you have to take that with a grain of salt because there's no way to independently verify that. And there's no governing body that says you can't lie about that. So uh, I don't think that Gundy outright said that, but he, he mentioned a, a, an example of calling a school that a player was apparently in contact with only for the school to say, yeah, we've never talked to him before. So I, I don't envy Mike Gundy's you know situation in this regard at all. Uh, additionally, the only other thing on NIL that I had to, to kind of point out, I wrote this down, is he, by his own rough approximation, which you know Mike Gundy's fascination for generalizations, he said he would have ventured to guess that no more than 20% of these players have paid their taxes which I don't know how you would verify that other than like a polling of the room, but that we've talked about that actually on this podcast, just the potential dangers that kids making, you know, uh, half a million dollars in a year and having no clue about the tax bill that comes with that. Apparently it's a thing. And, and Mike Gundy's taken note of it. He said that when Gunner got yeah. his forms in the mail, that he had no idea what they were for and what to do with them. And uh, if that's Gunner, I just I I can't imagine that there's other kids that know what to do with it. So it is a threat to look out for. It feels a little bit predatory in, in a way. So uh, just something to keep an eye on. And I I, I appreciated uh, Mike Gundy's you know candidness on that topic. Nil, you know I can talk about it for days, but I'll be honest, I'm ready to not talk about it. I, and I think I think Mike was also ready to stop talking about it. He mentioned he was ready the, to in, stop before it started. In the interview, he mentioned like there's not as much there's not much more we can do by talking about it. And he literally called it a waste of oxygen. And so I, I appreciated that from him. My thank you for bringing up the part about Gunner. My favorite part about that was, you know, Gundy probably has a full tax team to do his taxes. And he said when Gunner was asking him about it, he was telling him he needed to go like to the local tax place down the road in Stillwater. <laughs> I yeah, which TurboTax I think is ninety nine bucks, and his his yeah. tax form should have taken about fifteen minutes. So yeah, I thought that was pretty good. Yeah, make him make him learn on his own, Mike. I appreciate that. Uh, the big part of the podcast though was talking about both offensive and defensive scheme changes. 
offensively, when Dave asked him, he basically asked Mike, why did you guys decide to make some scheme changes on offense? And he referred to run game, going to more of that gap scheme along with the zone, along with going under center more, adding in more of that under center play action passing game. And Gundy said, you know, he had multiple different awesome quotes, which we'll get into, but he said that he kind of wrapped it up with there are two main reasons we made the change. The odd front, we needed to figure out ways to be able to run the football against the odd front. And he thinks the gap scheme will help with that, getting leverage, adding the down block, adding the tight end. And then people, defense is learning how to defend play action out of the shotgun way better than they were five, six years ago. So he said those were kind of the two main reasons. And he went into talking about how, you know, having being able to secure the edge in the gap scheme with a tight end or a wing and then forcing guys playing the pass to come up and stop the run. He said even the season where they won 12 games, lost in the Big 12 championship to Baylor, he thought there were times where they wanted the ball to run the ball that they couldn't run the ball. He also brought up the new rule with the first downs, talked about the clock not stopping. If you can run the football now, he, he mentioned you can basically run out the you know half of the fourth quarter. So if you throw a pass, though, the clock is going to stop. So you've got to be able to do that. Again, talking about play action under center and bringing up the secondary support players in the defense, how they've gotten so good at being able to kind of read play action out of the shotgun and make the decision quick enough to be able to defend either the run or the pass. So I thought all that was really, really interesting, Kate. I don't, I don't know uh, if you pulled any other quotes out besides the ones I just talked about, but hearing him go into that much detail, I don't think he's done that yet. And he's been asked this question in yeah. interviews on podcasts. I know with Robert Allen in that summer series, but he hasn't answered it like that yet. I don't think. I, I actually did pull out the quote about, you know, running the clock out, but there was a piece of it that maybe I had a little bit of a different perspective on. He talked about running the ball, obviously, as you just mentioned, allows you to bleed the clock out. And with this first down rule change, it can go from six minutes to two minutes in the blink of an eye, right? We just talked about that. But what I found interesting was the way he discussed in kind of uh, like a Freudian slip type of moment, like his ideal scenario for an end of game uh, outcome, which he didn't mention anything about, you know, scoring a late touchdown. It was actually bleed the clock, punt, play defense. He said in all kind of one passing line, I wish I would have clipped it in a soundbite because I found it to be so interesting, a glimpse into how he approaches these end of game situations. And we've seen it play out time and time and time again. I would actually, there was an example they gave Texas Tech. I would look at the game against Texas in 2021 when Oklahoma State went to Austin and beat Texas with the ground game at the end of that game. They scored a bunch of touchdowns, but they hardly had to throw the ball. And they they won that game by running the ball and with defense. And I think it actually aggravates a lot of Oklahoma State fans. And you know you'll hear that he doesn't put the pedal down at the end of games and try to go just go deliver the knockout blow, but he's won a lot of games and he hasn't gotten himself in a lot of trouble by taking that approach and not being conservative, but being smart with the clock, you know, making a team go 95 yards. I just found it to be interesting and a, a peek into kind of what you and I may have already known about him. Having talked about him for so long. Oh yeah, no, it's a great, that's a great call out from that quote. And I do think it's really interesting. And like you said, 
he's won games with that methodology. So if, if you're able to run the football late, that's what he's going to want to try to do. So it is interesting to kind of get yeah. a little glimpse into his mindset on that. Another thing, Cade, we actually got asked this question last week. So I thought it was interesting. Dave asked Mike a really similar question about how the running game scheme change affects your offensive line recruiting. And he basically kind of said the same thing we did. It it doesn't really like it's kind of like it's kind of like a these are the guys we can get type of thing. And this is the scheme we're going to go with based on the factors he mentioned earlier, the odd front the defense is getting better at being able to read play action out of the gun. He did mention though, that out of all the positions in the gap scheme, you could probably look at maybe a little bit shorter stocker stockier center if they're more powerful, but yeah, basically he kind of went into the, the fact that it's not really like they're, they're changing the scheme and then going to recruit differently. It's more of a, this is how they're recruiting and they think the scheme change will help along with those other factors. So I thought that was interesting. And he talked about how the play action out, out of going under center is very different for a QB. And Cade, my big takeaway from that whole discussion, and he's talking about footwork is the biggest change. You don't want to take any false steps, which is basically in football, a false step would be a, a step kind of like away from your the footwork it takes you to kind of complete the play. So making a wrong step somewhere that wastes time, a wasted step. But basically through that whole conversation, he said Alan Bowman did a lot of this in Mich- at Michigan in practice, and it's very new for Gunnar Gundy and Garrett Rangel. And as much as Casey Dunn, even on Robert Allen's show uh, recently, Casey Dunn and Mike Gundy has said that it's a QB competition, Gundy basically said Alan Bowman is QB1 by his answer to that question. Well... And I think that we've known this, but a hundred percent with the, it sounds like they're going to go under center even more than I thought just the amount that they're talking about it. Is it going to look like Baylor? You think is that, is that kind of what you're looking for? Because when I think of big 12 teams going under center, I think of Baylor. They were still in the shotgun a lot at that practice. Yeah. I was at like, I want to say it was like 70, 30, but that's going from 99-1. Right. So maybe maybe more like 80-20, but 20-30% under center compared to 1% is a huge, huge change. So I think it's going to look pretty drastically different. And Katie, you, you remember right after I came on after that practice, I talked about how they were in eye yeah. formation <laughs> yeah. under center at the 40-yard line. Yeah. So it's, it's definitely going to be really interesting. And I, I think – I don't think – it honestly makes me a little nervous with Bowman's injury history, what they would do if you had to. Now, Gundy did say he thinks Rangel is almost there because they've gone through it all spring. He's repping it, obviously, in the summer. He's not as worried about the snap. He thinks that part gets a little bit overblown. It's more of the footwork out after the snap. That becomes kind of the big thing that these quarterbacks get confused with. But if Bowman were to go down, you would hope that Rangel is able to run this or they'd have to kind of revert back to primarily shotgun, don't you think? No, that scares me. That that feels like the uh, kind of break glass in case of emergency type of scenarios if you right. couldn't run your offense because of a quarterback injury. And shoot, we saw that last year, but Oklahoma State tried to do as much as they possibly could to keep it as familiar as possible going from Spencer Sanders to Garrett Rangel, but you make a good point. 
I just don't like the way that, that bodes for the the season if that were to happen. Yeah, I agree. And then, kid, the last note, and I'll throw it back over to you if you had any other ones. The last note I had on the offensive part was Gundy talked about though, even with these changes, they are going to try to keep things simple, maintain some simplicity. And we've talked about we've talked about it when we've had Adam Lund on our podcast. What Oklahoma State does and why I think fans get so aggravated and it looks like they're running the same play over and over is because truly they are. They're just running it out of different formations with different motion attached, with different personnel on the field. But it's in practice, they are repping these same plays, whereas some teams may have a very complex playbook, but you have to have very experienced players, very talent, like all across the board. And if people were to go down because of injury, that would be a huge issue, which we've seen it be issue with Oklahoma State, even with this simplicity. So there's kind of two different methodologies that a lot of college football teams go with. And Oklahoma State chooses the get really, really good, be able to run these set number of plays at an elite level, and then add some eye candy and different looks on top of those so teams can't key on anything. But Gundy said, even with these changes, they're still going to kind of keep it simple. I'm wondering how that's going to look with this under center with the tight end and fullback position separated. So it's going to be really interesting to see how it kind of works out as we go into the season. Yeah, that's a, that's a great call. I, I I don't know what it's going to look like, but I, I agree with the methodology, especially in the transfer portal era where teams are replacing 25 to 50% of their roster. You've got to keep it simple. I, I like the way Mike's thinking. Yeah, on the and Kate, if you're okay moving to the last section about the defense, talked about Brian Nardo. Dave Hanzak was asking about that before we get into the actual scheme. I think so. I know we've talked about how Gundy and Nardo sat down for five or six hours and watched film and all this stuff. He's already mentioned that a bunch, but I don't know if I've heard him say this. He said he thinks they and again. This is a Mike Gundy generalization, so it could not be an accurate account, but he said he thinks they interviewed every single odd front guru guy for this job, and they traveled all across the country, and he he challenged Dave to name an odd front guy, and Gundy would thinks that he probably would have like interviewed like he would say, yes, we did interview that guy, and Nardo was the last guy they interviewed and he said it wasn't a courtesy interview he thought they could learn something from him but he he even noted that going into this interview he did not think they were going to hire this guy and after the five six hours he said man this is the guy and he said the reason the main reason why is because he couldn't stump him gundy said he was up there on the board drawing things that weren't even real and asking nardo hey what would you do in this situation and nardo would say well you know is the quarterback a running quarterback? Can the quarterback run? Can the running back do this? And kind of go through all these steps and say, look, I'm not sure because I've never seen that, but I would definitely go figure that out if we put that on, if that was on film for us to go into that week or during that game, make the halftime adjustment or something like that. And Gundy said the way he answered, not sounding like a know-it-all, asking the right questions and then saying he would figure it out, just Gundy just fell in love with that. Yeah, and I mean, I think part of that has to be he's a young guy, right? I mean, Nardo is, what is he, 35? Is that Do I have that right? Or somewhere right yeah, around 30, there? 30, 30, something. Somewhere in that like mid-30s. Mid, early range. to mid-30s. So yeah. my, my point to that 
is he has not coached at this level. I would think that that would be an immediate turnoff for Mike Gundy if this guy walked in from Emporia State and and kind of showed up the room, so to speak. But the other part of that is I think Mike Gundy truly values humility and and question asking because, I mean, I think there's a lot of reasons for it. But the way it sounded like Mike wanted to interview him was to like ask him questions that had no right answer just to see how he would handle it, which is brilliant. I can't imagine what that's like in a in a coaching interview because I know what it's like in the corporate sense. But I, I just am curious to see how it goes for Nardo because, you know, humility and uh, and honesty are one thing. It sounds like he's got the X's and O's part figured out pretty well, too, though, and he has the respect of his players, respect of his peers, and it sounds like they were on the whiteboard kind of, you know, talking shop and uh, that he held his own. So I, I'm looking forward to seeing how this goes. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. Gundy also mentioned he still wants to play four down at times, but they got to lean into what Nardo believes. He still wants to be flexible. You know, he pointed out an example on third down. He doesn't want to just rush three, right? Which, on my Twitter film breakdown of Nardo, you can see he does not just rush three normally on third down. And he said the main reason he wanted to bring in an odd front guy is because his staff, nobody was a guru on the odd front. So when yeah. they're going against it, even the offense going against it in practice, it just wasn't the same without a guy who really truly knew this system. And he said his staff is great. He just wanted to bring somebody in with that knowledge. And he said it's helped both the offense and the defense. So that was awesome. And, Kate, unless you had anything else, my like final takeaway was just how pumped Gundy seems going yeah. into this season. Like he sounded like a little kid at the end talking about how excited he was. Yeah, I and you can always tell, I think, the trajectory of an Oklahoma State season based on his preseason attitude. Um, he he seems more determined than ever to put the the ills of last season away. I think a lot of people are looking to last year as a as a reason to maybe write Mike Gundy off, write Oklahoma State off. Um, it doesn't seem like he's ready for that. It's it he seems energetic. He seems um like he's having fun with it. And I can't imagine that if practice was going poorly after last season, that he would be the way he's been up till this point in all the interviews we've heard with him. So uh, I feel really good about it. And I'll say this, Dustin, I was in Kansas this weekend and I put my money where my mouth was and I took the over six and a half. I put some scratch on it. Had to love it. Love it. Uh, Okay. So that's all we really have until we move. So let's move into football recruiting. If that's good with you, Oklahoma state, all of college football in the dead period until July 24th. So no official visits, nothing like that can happen until the end of July. We probably won't see anything until fall camp starts back up August 2nd. couple of commits and Kate, there's not going to be really many takes we have from this because these are guys that we predicted from last week and we talked about them a lot last week. So kind of just wanted to recap them, see if you had any other thoughts, but two guys Armstrong Notum, the 2024 defensive lineman, 6'2", 260 pounds from Mesquite Horn High School in Mesquite, Texas. He's a three-star, number 135 defensive lineman, number 195 rated player in Texas. This is the Rice decommit that Oklahoma State offered at the Down and Dirty Lineman Camp. That was his first Power 5 offer. He decommitted from Rice on June 24th. He committed to Oklahoma State on June 28th. I think really, Cade, the only like note that I that I don't think we've said before is he mentioned in Texas Football Magazine to Greg Powers that 
he bench presses 455 pounds <laughs> and he squats 675 Same. pounds. I just wanted to call those out because those are just ridiculous numbers. Yeah. I mean, there you go. That's how, that's how Oklahoma state, even with, you know, a, a lean offer list, that's how you land on a power five radar is, is with measurables like that. So. Yeah. And he was the 10, six, a co-defensive MVP. Oh, so wow. That, I, I mean, this is a, this is a big time player that just kind of went under the radar ah. because he committed to rice back in February. So I think people wow. thought his recruitment was over 69 tackles, 22 and a half for loss, 16 sacks, 24 quarterback hurries, two forced fumbles, two picks and a fumble recovery. You see him lined up at the five tech, very fast and athletic. His defense primarily primarily played a three down. They had him at nose guard a few times in a zero. He was stand up at times. He used his hands really well. This guy is a freak athlete for 260 pounds. And if he can maintain that athleticism and maybe even take on a little more weight and play that kind of Anthony Goodlow, Nathan Latou, Cody Walterscheid position as like one of those DEs, that Viper spot, that would be big time. Along with along with Notum, Tamaric Johnson, another guy we thought was going to commit, the 2024 edge, 6'3", 205 pounds from Midlothian Heritage High School. In, uh, he's a three-star, number 57 edge, number 127 player in Texas. I think that moved OSU up into like the mid-40s in rankings uh, after Notum. And then Johnson actually doesn't have a 247 composite. So he hasn't affected the ratings yet. I think that'll bump him up a little bit more. He announced his offer on May 9th, took his official visit on June 16th, and then just committed on June 30th over Boise State, BYU, Cal, Houston, Kansas, Minnesota, Nebraska, Oregon State, Utah. This is a, I really, really like Johnson. This is more of that Colin Oliver, Sam linebacker position yep. than I think a true defensive end edge in Oklahoma State's defense he makes the 12th commit in the class the seventh one on defense and one interesting note on him because we've talked a lot about him Cade is that he said that one of the main reasons he committed to Oklahoma State is because his position coach has been there for like 10 years and that's what really stands out to him about OSU so the people get mad the people who get mad at Gundy for wanting to maintain that continuity on the staff sometimes it works out in Oklahoma State's favor yeah, I would say more often than not, the vast majority of times it works out in Oklahoma State's favor. So, uh, yeah, I think Johnson is a great pickup. Colin Oliver, Calvin Bundage vibes for me uh, from him. And I think at 6'3", 205, he'll probably play at what? What do you think? 6'3", 230 at Oklahoma State? Yeah, I think he'd be in that kind of linebacker size range and play that yep. Sam spot, which Colin will play this year. Kind of sometimes standing up on the edge. You know, he stood up on the edge. He had his hand in the ground. He was off the line of scrimmage. He bull rushed people at the Texas 5A level, so very strong. One thing I noticed on film, he's a really good tackler, which yeah, nice. you don't see that a ton from some of these linebacker defensive backs at the high school level. They'll hit guys and they'll just fall over because right. it's high school I instead of wrapping up. He breaks down, wraps up, and makes the tackle. The last note, Cade, this hasn't happened yet, but it, I think it's going to happen tomorrow, so wanted to mention it. Jonathan Agumadu is announcing tomorrow. I think he's going to commit to Oklahoma State. 2024 linebacker, 6'1", 220 pounds from McKinney High School in McKinney, Texas. He's a three-star, number 134 linebacker, number 214 in Texas. His final list was OSU, SMU, Mizzou, Memphis, and North Texas, and I think it's coming down to SMU, who we recently visited in Oklahoma State. 
Mike Roach for 247, put in a crystal ball for OSU late last week. I think Oklahoma State's going to get him. We've talked about Agumadu a lot. Another great addition for Oklahoma State if it happens. Yeah, a, a, a guy that you and I have talked about for several months now that's been on Oklahoma State's radar. This would be a great get. He's friends with uh, Landon Cleveland and some other guys. Yeah, and Cabongo. Right? Yeah, yeah that's right. Buddies with them. So I, I would be shocked if he doesn't announce a commitment to Oklahoma State tomorrow. And I, I don't think it would be you know, a devastating blow to the class, but I think he's a really good player and the fact just everything's pointing OSU. So it would be a big shock for me if it wasn't. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. And uh, friend, our friend, Mike Roach with the prediction, you always like to see yes. that. So. Uh, a couple of just quick notes, Levante Johnson, the 2024 safety three-star from North shore high school. He has Oklahoma state in his top list, a final six of Texas tech, Purdue, K-State, SMU, Houston, Oklahoma State. He is going to make a commitment tomorrow. I think it's going to be Houston. It would be awesome if it was Oklahoma State. They've already got multiple safeties in this class. So right. I, I, I don't know how hard they're even recruiting Johnson to this point. I think he's going to land somewhere else, but did want to mention it. Bo Tate, the 2024 linebacker from Corner Canyon High School in Draper, Utah, committed to Baylor. We thought that was probably going to be the spot he landed. It seemed like it was down to Baylor and OSU. He's going to Baylor. And then this one, I'm not as worried about Bo because Oklahoma State's about to get a Goumadu, a linebacker there, or we think they're going to. Brett Carroll, the 2024 offensive lineman from Olathe, Kansas, has committed to Minnesota. That sucks. He just visited Oklahoma State. They Kid, most of the linemen that they've offered are off the board, and they only have two. And I think we talked about it. I think they need like five or six. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's unfortunate. It's not trending in the right direction, right? I mean, he was a guy, especially Minnesota. I've always respected their ability to create and develop an offensive line. They've always got a good one. So that's a bummer. You would, you would have liked to see him in Stillwater. All right, let's move on, Kate. That's all I have for recruiting. If you want to move on to basketball. Yeah, let's let's do it, Dustin. A couple of obviously quick notes, right? Eric Daly at the U19 uh, World Tournament obviously just ended in, I was going to say Oklahoma State, the United States uh, out early. But Eric Daly uh, continued his uh, great uh, offseason at the U19 tournament. Several games in the double-digit categories with five-plus rebounds, I think was a guy that uh, truly was a leader of that team. And so Oklahoma State fans should be pumped. We've talked about him a lot on this podcast. And in the last game that they played, stepped out and hit two threes. So as we talked about the need for Oklahoma State to have a stretch four, we talked about it on this podcast, that Eric Daly appears to be that and I think that comes at us as, as a surprise to some, myself included. I, I had him kind of pegged as your starting three going into next season, but uh, that's not the case. He's a four, and uh, I thought that he did some things at this tournament to really wow. Uh, and it's unfortunate that the United States couldn't get the gold or, or really even compete for it. So the thing, again, that I take away from this is I think Eric Daly's the real deal. Yeah, he he's looked good. I got to watch the Japan game and the China game. So that was, those are the first two games that I actually got to watch. And I really liked what Daly did, you know, against China, 
it seemed like one of their players, I believe his name was Akira Jacobs. He seems to be the guy they run their offense through. He was going off early in that game. You know, USA ends up dominating later, but they put Daly on him and Daly pretty much shut him down. He got Daly one time baseline, but I thought he defended really well. I thought he defended really well out of the pick and roll. I know he hit a couple threes in that France game, but Kate, I think that's going to be a spot of improvement for him. When he has time to shoot the three, yeah, it looks great. You know, he's left-handed, so anybody left-handed in basketball it normally looks pretty. It takes him a little while to get it off, though, and there were a couple times, I believe there was one in the China game and one in the Japan game, where he had to rush his three-point shot motion a little bit, and it looked wild, and those shots were way off. So I think it's just going to be something he needs to kind of learn a little bit more. But man, I love, he scored in the post on a Caleb Boone-esque spin move in that China game. And I know that's something Coach Boynton has wanted him to work on. I was really impressed. This was the first time, aside from, you know, highlights that I've really watched a full game of Eric Daly. And I know he's only playing, you know, 20-ish minutes in these games. So not the entire time, but I thought he looked really good. I mean, he's just incredibly versatile. I think he could be even at times if they needed it, he could pull the ball up the floor for you. Like if if there's an opportunity for him to advance it, I think he's a guy that you wouldn't mind having the ball. I mean, remember there was a time that we thought Musa Cisse could play some point that never happened. I actually think Eric Daly like could bring the ball up for you in a a rare game. And that's the thing. Like, I think Oklahoma State is potentially looking for that. But the scenario that I'm playing out in my head is what Javon Small does for you at point guard, as opposed to what you had last year. I just think this team's going to look so different with a space creating point guard. Um, if you've got a four that can shoot it uh, and and needs a little space, I think you have a point guard who's going to create that for you. So um, my my stock is rising after having seen Eric Daly play, you know, kind of on the world stage, Dustin. Yeah, I agree. His his per 40 minute scores, Marshall Scott posted this on Pistols Firing. 21.8 points, 9.6 rebounds, 3.5 assists, 2.2 steals, and 2.2 blocks a game. I know he's not going to play 40 minutes, but it's awesome to look at that because he they the USA team is rotating people in. You know, they're trying to win these games, but they're also trying to get all these guys some minutes that made the team. So I think it actually does make sense in this case to look at his per 40. And I those are insane numbers. Yeah. Uh-huh. I, I'm I'm pumped about it. They need one more shooter, Dustin. And that shooter could come from anywhere. <laughs> it could come from the transfer portal. It could come from Slovenia, perhaps. Yes. So we we've gotten some DMs. Shout out to, I'm not going to name names because this is kind of like a, it's not like a source thing, but just, we appreciate it. Coach Boynton has also followed this guy. Which you so, know we love. Yes. Yeah, so it's, I believe it's pronounced Sergei Makura from, from the Slovenia team. He scored 19 against the USA. He's 6'9". He's a shooter. Seems to have a really quick kind of first step to the basket. Lengthy wing guy. Can finish above the rim as well. He can shoot the three. I don't think he shot extremely well in the U19, but looking at just kind of what he's done in other leagues, he looks to be a shooter at that 6'9 spot. 
Pete, I, I mean, if there's no, if there's nobody else on the radar, I, I mean, I would definitely take Makura. Yeah, his tape is actually pretty intriguing. He's six nine, so he's he's versatile, but he's a kind of a freak athlete. He can jump out of the gym and shoot the three. This is a guy that, like, if Oklahoma State pulled him, I think would fly under the radar. Um, but it does give me, I mean, even, you know, the guy that the Thunder picked up, the EuroLeague MVP, like, it gives me similar vibes to that. Um, I, I think McCure is a good player uh, and would unlock a lot for this team uh, next year. Yeah, I really, I, I completely agree with that. We'll keep an eye on, we, we don't have any info that this guy can even play in college I think he's or even been, wants to in the u.s yeah, so right i think mike boynton following him on twitter though is is not nothing maybe maybe yeah. they've discussed it so lots of uh hurdles to overcome with a uh international player like that who has not necessarily been recruited at the ncaa level so all right kate i think that's all we got on basketball so i think all that's left is the roundup in questions i think so let's roll Check out Homefield Apparel's new Oklahoma State line. I don't know if you have. I know Dustin and I both are rocking the new Homefield Apparel shirts that have just gone live on their website at homefieldapparel.com. I mean, the Curse of Cowboys across the chest is absolutely gorgeous. I don't know if you guys have seen the Pistol Patty t-shirt, but it is great as well. And Homefield Apparel is doing phenomenal stuff, even outside of Oklahoma State sports. If you go on their website right now, you can see potential future Big 12 members, Colorado, with a throwback t-shirt on their website. I'm just a big fan of Homefield stuff, and the quality is unbelievable. So check them out at homefieldapparel.com. And when you use our promo code FEELS12, you actually will get a discount. That's right. Fields 12. We get you 15% off your first order when you use our promo code Fields 12 at homefieldapparel.com. Check them out right now and tell them that the Feels Like 45 podcast sent you. All right. So for the roundup, the first thing I wanted to mention, since we've already talked golf, that was going to be kind of our first thing. So since we've talked golf, we can take that off the list. The Learfield Cup. This is the Learfield Directors Cup. It honors institutions having success in all sports in which the NCAA offers a championship along with FBS football. All sports are weighted equally. Oklahoma State placed 25th nationally in the final Learfield Directors Cup standings. It marks the first time since the standings were created in 1992-93 that the Pokes finished in the top 25 nationally in three consecutive years as Oklahoma State was 18th in 2020-21, 23rd, and 23rd in 2021-22. It's pretty awesome, and Oklahoma State's actually at a little bit of a disadvantage because they don't sponsor women's volleyball, and they don't get credit for equestrian, so they only have 17 sports eligible for the Learfield Directors' Cup, while most of the other schools are counting points from 19 sports, so they're two down there. Oklahoma State was the third highest Big 12 school on the list. Texas was number two. OU was number 23. Stanford won. They were first. So pretty awesome because, you know, we've gotten some questions on here about this being, you know, is this Oklahoma State's worst athletic year in a while and things like that? And I think this tells you no. Well, I think the thing about it is that no one team was bad. Uh, Oklahoma State football was at one point a top 10 team. So it's like it's easy to, you know, kind of judge the way things turned out but 
ultimately, Dustin, nobody was bad. And on, on average, Oklahoma State Athletics as a whole had a good year. You had baseball host a regional. You had softball make it all the way to the College World Series. Absolutely think that Oklahoma State deserves to be there. And uh, I don't think that the the notion goes unappreciated uh, from me. I think Oklahoma State generally needs to be better in football, and the sentiment changes a lot. But uh, that's just the way I see it. So, yeah. Uh, next, we got baseball. So the MLB draft combine was recently. Oklahoma State had four participants. Pitcher, Jawan Watts-Brown. Shortstop, Marcus Brown. Utility player, Nolan McClain. And second baseman, Rock Riggio. The MLB draft will be next week. Cade, I think if Watts-Brown, who is for sure going to get drafted, he's the number 63-ranked player on MLB.com and number 38 on D1 Baseball, I think he's gone. Pretty much no matter where he's drafted. And I think Marcus Brown, who's not ranked in the top 200 on MLB.com or in D1 Baseball's top 150, I think if he gets drafted and can sign and gets a deal signed, I think he is also gone. I just think it sounds like he believes that he doesn't have any anything else to kind of show on film at the college level. And he thinks he's kind of gotten to as far as he can go at the college level. So I think those two are going to be gone. Nolan McLean, he's 89 on MLB.com and 79 on D1 Baseball. He, after almost signing last year, there were some injury concerns with the Orioles where it didn't get finalized. I think he's definitely gone. My only question comes to Rock Riggio, who's number 141 on MLB.com and number 52 on D1 Baseball. He's not playing in the Cape because he wanted to do the draft combine and things of that nature. We know he didn't have a great time in the Cape last year. He went on a little bit of a slump. I think there's a, I think it's like 50, 50 right now with Riggio. And let me know if you think differently, just from what we've heard, it sounds like Tom Dorado on the radio feels similarly about that. If he gets drafted really, really high, like first or second round, I think he's gone. But if it drops back to fourth or fifth round, he may come back is kind of where I'm leaning. I think we'll just have to see, but it would be a huge blow if he went, to the majors. I mean, all the best to rock, but that would be a huge blow to this team. Yeah, I think so. And I think it kind of brings us back to something we talked about last week and the importance of Oklahoma state having success in the portal in that middle infield. I mean, if you lose your shortstop and your second baseman, uh, I don't see a lot coming in right now that makes you feel good about where you're at. So, yeah, I agree. Uh, two other quick baseball notes, Victor Medeiros just was with Oklahoma state last year was called up from double A, the double A trash pandas to the Angels. And he pitched two innings, had two strikeouts, gave up one earned run, and had two walks against the Diamondbacks. So I think from looking into it a little bit more, I think the Angels have been making some kind of interesting call-ups recently. So calling up Victor Medeiros, who I know is str- still in the minor league level, has struggled giving up the long ball. But pretty awesome for Medeiros to get in with the Angels. We'll kind of see how that goes. He's only 22. So if he were to stick around, he would probably have a very long MLB career being only 22 and getting called all the way up to the bigs. And then Thomas Hatch, who's been with the Blue Jays, former Oklahoma State pitcher. He's been kind of up and down, up and down even this year. He got called up and pitched a little bit recently. It looks like he is maybe going to stick on the roster after they option right-hander Trent Thornton back to AAA. Hopefully he does. That would be awesome. Uh, I know you and I both really liked Hatch at Oklahoma yeah. State, but cool to see these two kind of making some noise recently in the MLB. 
Yeah. I mean, the Thomas Hatch thing is like he was so dominant in college and and that sometimes translates, but it doesn't always to major league. And it's it's always kind of confounded me. There's many reasons why I'm no baseball scout. Uh, we could get Joel Pinfield on to talk about those types of things. <laughs> G- give him uh, let him hit us with some of his euphemisms that he loves to throw out there. But uh <laughs> I, I love the Thomas Hatch thing and Victor Medeiros sharing the mound with, with Shohei Otani. That's not a bad yeah. place to be. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. So uh, best of luck to those guys. We'll kind of see how that continues throughout the MLB season, which is about to hit the all-star break. Yeah. Softball. Only real interesting note there besides the transfer portal closing last week is Kelly Maxwell had her USA media conference because she's going to be going playing with uh, USA in the WBSC World Cup. And just a couple quick notes. She did say that she talked to Coach G and that after the World Cup, she will most likely be shut down for all of fall, which we know was not the case last year. Hopefully that will help her finger heal up. She seems to be in complete agreement with Coach G on that and even says she regrets not resting more last season. She had some nice things to say about John Barfelt on his exit with the team, and she thinks he made the right decision for he and his family. We talked about John being, which you and I didn't know, 67 years old, so it might be time for him to kind of retire, and we completely respect that and understand that, even though he was a great coach. And then the last note, she said she wants to work on throwing inside to right-handed hitters. I thought this was interesting, Cade, because we saw that was where she kind of gave up the long ball when she was throwing inside on the inside part of the plate to right-handed batter. So she said, if she, she's going to try to work on it this summer and into next spring, but obviously she can throw to other parts of the plate, but it's just something she wants to try to work on. Yeah. Well, I I, I'm looking forward to seeing how that goes for, but uh, one you've talked about it, but I, I guess it didn't register that she's had that kind of lingering injury. So it'll be good for her to get some time off and, and feel better about that. Um, I mean, Dustin, she's, she's going to come back and cement her status as either one of, or the best pitcher in Oklahoma state softball history. Don't you think? Yeah. I mean, she's going to be definitely up there with some of the all-time greats. So it'll be, it'll be really awesome to see last note, Cade, before questions, Kind of a negative one to end on, I guess. But Lindy Waters' option, team option, was not picked up by the Thunder. He is a free agent. I think he's going to land on another team because the Thunder gave him some run quite a bit in important spots, and he made some big threes. I think he's shown that he can hit the three and he can defend and that he's a smart basketball player. And shout out to the Thunder for giving him a shot because I think that's going to help him stick around for a bit. Unfortunately for Lindy Waters, it would appear that the Thunder are starting to uh, build their roster for the next phase of their rebuild. Uh, And guys like Lindy Waters don't normally stick around, even though they may have done a good job. They may be beloved by the fan base. Those guys typically go. I mean, Patty Mills coming in is is super interesting for the Thunder. And I mean, happy Chet Holmgren Day to you, Dustin. I forgot to mention that as we uh, started the podcast, so. Yeah, Summer League starts tonight in Salt Lake, so that'll be fun to watch for any Thunder fans out there. I'll definitely be locked in. No doubt. But yeah, Cade, uh, that's it if if you're ready to move to questions. Yeah, let's go. All right, our first one is Patrick at Patty Longlegs. He said, it's difficult to come up with a unique question that you boys haven't already hit, so I'll just go with, (laughs) will Ricky Fowler be the first non-football player inducted into the Ring of Honor? And I think Patty's just speaking kind of hypothetically there. But it got me thinking, Cade, non-football, if they were to do a non-football ring of honor, 
who would be some of the names you would throw out there? I mean, you got to have Eddie Sutton for basketball. You got to have John Smith for wrestling. I just wanted to see what some other ones you obviously Inky and Robin Ventura for baseball, but who are some other ones? Yeah. Well, I think you just took them all, but uh, <laughs> I would maybe. Oh man, that's a really tough one. Um, Cause I would have said Mike Gundy, but he's obviously very much football. Um, Iba, Henry Iba would probably be. Yeah. One. I mean like Big country. Yes. Maybe. But but I think at that point you're reaching pretty hard. Like it's it's not like even big country. Like everybody loves Brian Reeves, but to put him in the Ring of Honor is is probably a stretch for me. I would think it would have to be somebody like um, Eddie Sutton. That would be maybe the line for me. Yeah, I, I think if you were to do softball, it'd obviously be Michelle Smith. I guess you could maybe do Sandy Fisher uh, for her tenure as a right. coach, but. Kenny G's kind of making his mark as the best coach. Let's just do that history. this so, off season. Throw yeah, so I think that'd be. I think that'd be a Michelle Smith golf. I Bob Tway. He, you know, Patty mentioned Ricky Fowler, and then wrestling. Obviously, John Smith. But there's a bunch of guys in wrestling. You'd probably have to like set a draw a line because you know Dayton Fix, Johnny Hendricks, Jake Roche, all guys like yeah, that. I mean, you if know, you're not. John Smith would be the line. Like if you're not an Olympic gold medalist, the greatest wrestler of all time, you don't go in the ring of honor. <laughs> yeah. It's a great question though. Uh, re- really appreciate is. that Patrick, uh, Randy D that's me, our buddy, Randall Dryden, shout out to Randy for sending this in. He had two questions for us and we'll end them with these. Cause these are our final two. Since we hit Tyler's earlier, he said, what would you rather have happen to OSU win one natty and never make the playoffs again, or make the championship game every year? and never win kind of a Buffalo Bills style there. I, I want a natty. I, yeah, I, same. I think I would be the one natty. I think I'd take the one natty and then we'd probably have to change the name of our podcast, but that would yeah, be the, fine with the me. The day that Oklahoma State wins a national championship, the next day I'm in a Justin's getting fitted for my replica ring. <laughs> uh, and then Randy says, will we land a QB in this class? And yes, I still think they're going to land – Maya Lewaki Smith from California. It sounded like some people thought he was going to announce this weekend. He still needs to think about it. I actually think that bodes well for OSU because I think that BYU was the favorite until his OSU visit. So I think the fact that he is still thinking about it is actually better for OSU. So I still think they're going to land him. If not, I think they're going to try to get a Juco guy. Yeah, I, I think you're right, and I think Smith would be the guy uh, of all of them that that I would want. I mean, a Juco guy would be fun, but I think Smith has some serious upside to him. Um, so anyway, Dustin, we just got literally one more if you've got you know t- uh, a minute to answer this one. This was from Orange Vision at underscore Orange VZN. It's a great one. What are the games this football season that decide the trajectory of the season? He said the games of focus that could be overlooked, whether that be a Cincinnati on homecoming, Central Florida on the road, or a BYU to finish off the year. Over six and a half, baby, let's go. That's what he said, and I stamped that approved as well. That's a great question, Dustin. I'll go earlier in the year. I think that Arizona State game on the road in a blackout environment is a – sneaky big game i don't think arizona state's going to be that good but there's a chance that oklahoma state slips up there and if they do i don't know what happens going down the road where you have kansas kansas state both teams that you lost to coming in and you've already got a loss on the schedule 
But if you go into that Kansas State game 3-0, and you're probably ranked and feeling really good about yourself on that Friday night. So that game sets a tone for me. And if you win that one, then I would say that Kansas State game next is, is it's, uh, you know, it's those two for me. Is It's Iowa State, though, right, first? Oh, is that right? Am I, is that right? Let me double check. I think you that, are right. That was actually going to be my answer was no, the Iowa correct. State game because I think that one is getting a little bit underlooked because hey, State is the next weekend on a Friday. So yeah. I was actually going to say Iowa State. Yes, it is before right. the K-State game because yep. if you come up, like you said, if you win that Arizona State game, you beat a 10-win South Alabama team who's trending up with a great up-and-coming coach like Kane Womack. You've got K-State on the other side of this game and Iowa State's coming in with possibly, you know, losing some players. It hasn't been announced yet, though, through the gambling scandal that happened there. I think this, that that's your trap game right there because this is a Iowa State team who already probably wasn't going to be very good. They could lose some more players, including, you know, there's some rumors that Hunter Deckers is possibly involved in that. We don't know anything, but if they were to lose their QB1, that would be huge. And I think Oklahoma State could come in taking that game a little too lightly, and it could be an issue. I think they're going to dominate that game, but that would be one, I think, just to answer his question that I think is being maybe a little underlooked that I think is very important to start Big 12 play with a victory. Yeah, because I think the conference schedule softens up. I actually think the front half of your schedule is where some of the meat is and where your biggest opportunities to set the tone are. Road trips to Tempe and and Ames in the first two of four weeks of the season is nothing to laugh at. Like that that is a a tough draw. I personally, yeah. Think. No, I completely agree. I love that question though. Thanks for adding it in. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for uh, letting me throw it in under the wire. Do we have any more? Is that it? That's it. That's all we got. Well, Dustin, thank you for a great show this week. Obviously, uh, a happy 4th of July to you. Stay safe with you and your family. And uh, yeah, again, a happy Chet Holmgren day to you. I can't wait to sit down and watch that this <laughs> evening. But uh, if you're not already, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at FeelsLike45Pod. You can follow Dustin at DustRagu. You can follow me at Cade Webb. We will see you guys back here next week. Have a safe and, safe and happy 4th. Go Pokes.